thanks for joining us today. It's really a pleasure to um, welcome Amanda Jernigan, who's a dear friend and a terrific poet. She's the author of two books of poetry, Groundwork, uh, published by Biblioasis, and All the Daylight Hours uh, by Comorant Books. And she's presently working on a critical edition of uh, Richard Outram's work. Um, and she's, she's in the thick of that at the moment. Anyways, I'm delighted to have you here for the last lecture conversation of the season. Thank you. And one of the reasons, I just sort of uh, had an intuition about Amanda being the right person to speak before Sean Dixon's play, God in Need of Help, that you'll see this afternoon. Sure enough, as I sort of shared Sean's work with Amanda and Amanda's work with Sean, they both were sort of quite taken by it. Um, in fact, uh, they've both been critically called mythopoets. Sean was called the true inheritor of Gwendolyn McEwen's mythopoetic legacy, and Amanda, the last of the mythopoets. Um, Where does that leave Sean? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there, are, maybe there are two unicorns. That, that would be a nice thing yeah, 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 <laughs> for yeah. unicorns everywhere. <laughs> it's true, it's true. So I, I thought I might start by asking Amanda just to describe a little bit what, what mythopoetry or being a mythopoet might mean. Very good. Well, I thought it might make sense to begin with uh, the equally complicated question of what myth might mean. Mm -hmm. Northrop Frye, who of course wrote a lot about myth, uh, said, you know, myth means so many things that anyone who uses that word needs to immediately sort of define their terms. Uh, partly because the way we use that word myth colloquially can sometimes mean the exact opposite with what we mean when we use it in other contexts. You know, if somebody uh, tells you a, a, a story and you say, oh, that's just a myth, you know, you mean that's a falsehood, that's a lie. And of course, there's a great tradition in which all poets are seen as liars. So I guess we could say that a myth a poet is a liar. But of course, we use that word myth in other senses. Uh, literary scholars will use the myth, the word myth to mean simply a story. Etymologically, that's what the word means. So a mythopoet would be a poet who is interested in stories in the broadest sense. And in that sense, we might say just about, well, not, I won't say any poet, but many, many poets are mythopoets. You know, any po poet whose work has a narrative element is in that sense a mythopoet. But then there's still this other sense in which we use that word myth to apply not just to any story, but to this sort of um, special group of stories that have particular weight um, in a culture. Uh, stories that tell us about ourselves, tell us about the world that we live in, and tell us something about um, how we get along in this world that we live in. Um, and so a mythopoet in that sense is somebody who is interested in these uh, big stories. R really, these are stories of relations, stories about the relationship between humanity and the world in which we live. And there's this wonderful thing, um, the critic and, and poet Robert Bringerst from uh, the west coast of Canada talks about um, gods as being relational figures. He says, you know, whenever um, there's a sense of human beings wanting to talk about their relationship to some external force uh, in story, a god will appear. Um, so in, in that sense, you know, I think we could think of mythopoets as people who are interested um, in these sort of big stories of relationship. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to get back to this mm -hmm. a little bit later. But maybe before 
we get to hear some of your myth of poetry. I guess I want to ask you, well, one thing I really like, about, that I don't know if I read an essay that Amanda wrote recently, and I'm not sure if you're quoting somebody or, or speaking yourself, but the idea of someone who uses myth and makes it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, a, a poet etymologically is a maker. So, you know, if you look at the root meanings of those words, a myth, uh, mytho-poet is a myth-maker or a story-maker. Mm -hmm. um, and, and myths have come down to us, many of them, in the form of poems. Um, so there's a very fine line, I think, between sort of using myth in poetry and actually participating as a maker mm -hmm. of myth and a remaker of myth. You know, myths seem to keep themselves alive by... Um, asking to be perennially remade. Mm -hmm. uh, so a mythopoet is someone who participates in that tradition of sort of making and remaking mm -hmm. and unmaking, you know. Well, and actually the play that you'll see this afternoon in part is about um, what keeps myth, what keeps stories, what keeps art, what keeps gods alive and the reciprocal relationships and agreements between those things. So I think this is quite apt in that way. Yeah. as well. Well, let's get back into that in a moment and about why these particular groups of stories are important to a poet and a playwright living in Canada, in Ontario in 2014. Let's maybe jump into hearing, uh, hearing some work and then we can, we can talk further on that. So I think Amanda's going to read um, from two sections of uh, her book, Groundwork. So uh, Groundwork is a book in three sections. Uh, the first section involves poems that are set on a kind of um, somewhat fantastical archaeological dig in the environs of uh, ancient Carthage, what is modern-day Tunisia. Uh, so they, they exist in this world of actual kind of physical antiquity. And the second two sections of the, or the second and the third section of the book, um, move from this world of, of physical antiquity into the sort of... Um, uh, into the myth world, which is both an ancient world and a world that is, is perennially new. Uh, so the second section of the book is called First Principles, um, principles of the ALS variety, like the principal actors in a play, First Principles. And these are poems that are set in uh, quite a, an unorthodox Garden of Eden. And then the final section of the book, which is called Journey Work, is kind of a reweaving of um, stories from Homer's Odyssey, so it's in, in the world of classical myth. And I wanted to read um, some poems from each of those, um, the, the second and the third section, um, the world of Christian myth, the world of classical myth, in part because Sean's play uh, is sort of located at a, a nexus in which those two worlds are interacting. So this is the first poem in the series, First Principles. I had been reading a lot of Northrop Frye when I was working on this series, and one of the things that Frye says is that the story of Genesis is for him not so much the story of creation as it is the story of the dawning of the idea of creation on a human mind. That was a, a very interesting idea to me, and this poem emerged in part out of my uh, sort of meditating on, on that idea. It's called Obad, which is, of course, a dawn poem, a morning poem. The time, if time it was, would ripen in its own sweet time. One thought of dawn. One felt that things were shaping up somehow, that it was getting on. 
day broke. Upon the waters broke in waves on waves unbreaking, and night fell, unveiling in its wake one perfect whitened rib of land. I slept, and while I slept, I dreamed a breaking wave, a flowering tree, and all of one accord I seemed. I woke, and you divided me. A lot of these uh, poems are in voices. There is, of course, an old alliance between drama and myth, um, and so some of these poems are sort of in a, a quasi-dramatic mode. This one is called Lowly. Lowly I am, though highly born. Many a jeweled cloak have worn. Many a jeweled cloak have lost and left it to lie where it fell in the dust and the underbrush. No man may tell whether I augur head or tail. In the morning when the world began, I went on four legs. Now I have none. And the final poem I'm going to read from that sequence is called Catch. And it's a poem that doesn't immediately announce itself as an Eden poem. And I wanted to read it in part because I think um, when my first book, Groundwork, came out, uh, it was sort of read as this mythopoetic book. When my second book, All the Daylight Hours, came out, it was read as being uh, the personal book, sort of the, the personal counterpart to the kind of formal uh, mythographic work that was groundwork. But for me, the lines between the personal and the mythopoetic have always been uh, quite porous. Uh, and sometimes the poems that seem to be most mythographic are actually most personal. Uh, but this is a, a poem that's, I think, um, placed at a different point along that spectrum, I guess. And if I can just say, yeah. um, I, I received this poem, actually. Um, I don't know, was it a, was it a broadsheet or? Yeah. Yeah, it was a broadsheet. So Amanda and her partner, John, they, they do these collaborations um, annually, these um, keepsakes, um, where John will make uh, a photograph and now more recently some wood engravings that are partners, um, the poem and the, the visual piece. And so I received this poem in that way. I couldn't tell if, because actually I think I got one of the early proofs yeah. off, so I, didn't, I, don't, I couldn't remember if it was an official keepsake or not. But I had never seen it as a poem that sat in this. I just saw it as really resonant with the here and now. And it felt very contemporary to me, and I didn't place it in this biblical realm until reading it in collection. So it's kind of wonderful that it operates in these places. But yeah. Wonderful. Catch. My father was holding a ball in the shape of the sun. The sun, he said, at 4.5 billion years of age is in its prime, with more or less an equal span ahead before its hydrogen depleted, it begins to slough its shells and eat its children, a red giant. By which time you, my son, and I will be long gone and all we love. And then he tossed the ball to me. I didn't mean to catch it, but my hand reached up. So as I said, the third sequence of poems in this book um, comes out of my reading and, and thinking about Homer's Odyssey. But it also comes uh, sort of to move from the mythopoetic realm into the personal realm from my experience of living by the ocean for the first time. I was born and raised in southern Ontario, and then I went and I lived for four years in St. John's, Newfoundland. And, um, 
that experience of uh, living by the sea made me go in search of new language and new rhythms, and I found those in part in, in Homer's Odyssey, and for me, um, perforce in a translation of Homer's Odyssey, because sadly I have no Greek. But I discovered the wonderful translation of uh, an American classicist named Richmond Lattimore, um, which is written in, uh, in verse, in a kind of loose hexameter line that's meant to sort of mimic the rhythms of the Greek. And I found it very beautiful and, and also um, inspiring in, in the sense that it was the, um, it was the thing that, that opened up to me this new landscape in which I was suddenly living. The first poem in the series is called Front Story, and it's in the voice of a figure in the Odyssey named Phemios, a poet. When Odysseus returns home, he finds that his, his house has been overrun by these uh, sort of riotous chaps who are laying suit to his loyal wife, Penelope. Um, and he sort of uh, slays everybody in this great bloodbath at the end of the Odyssey. But he spares two people, the messenger. This is like a wonderful reversal of the usual practice of shooting the messenger. He actually spares the messenger. And he also spares the poet, Phemios. So this is in the voice of Phemios. At the end of the Odyssey, the Iliad comes back in all its terrible detail. Odysseus slaughtering suitors till the floor runs red as great Scamandros, or rutting lustful in his rooted bed. I didn't want to tell you, but I have to since he spared me. And this is called Penelope in Heavy Weather. I feel that I could weather death if only I could tell you of it after. It's amazing what we've made all right across this kitchen table. But how could I relate beyond the stopping of the blood, the breath, the stopping of relation. That's no country. Perhaps, she said, taking up her glass, lifting her glass of sea dark wine. That's why I spend such time telling you of it now. And this is called Penelope Dreams of Geese. In the Odyssey, Penelope has a premonition of Odysseus's return. And it takes the form of a dream she has uh, in which a fox gets into the goose pen and slays all of her geese. And it's sort of this interesting moment in the, in the Odyssey because for the most part, Penelope seems to resent all of these suitors who have sort of overrun her house. Um, but in the dream, you know, she weeps when her geese are killed. And um, it's, it's an interesting moment for a reader of the Odyssey who, like me, reacted with with real horror to the bloodbath that happens at the end of that, uh, that epic. Penelope dreams of geese. After a storm, the ocean gathers up its broken waves. A lifeguard, my vocation is to save lives. But no life is saved. Though my seat is made of olive wood well seasoned and the timbers square, the uprights plumb, the horizontals level. Far inland where a grove of trees affords good shelter from the wind, the censure of the Ithacans, I pledged myself to Aphrodite, goddess of love and voyages, the one who lets you save one life at the expense of all the others. 
Last night I dreamed a quick brown fox had tunneled under the courtyard wall and one by one slain all my geese. The white ones with their craning beaks, the mottled, knobbly-headed one, the little one who always followed along behind, the masked one and her mate. I'll end with, with two more poems from the series, uh, the first of these in the voice of the kind of Odysseus figure in the series, and then the last one back in Penelope's voice. The girls. Busy in our wake, the sea unravels our wake. They say there are three fates. Clotho, who spins the thread of a man's life, Lachesis, who draws it out, and Atropus, who cuts it. What do they call the one who simply follows along behind, unraveling what her sisters have perplexed? Surely she's most powerful of all. At Dorian, the muses, encountering Thamorus, the boastful singer, in their anger struck him maimed, left him his voice, but took away his memory. A dreadful fate. But wind and swell are thamorous, water falling on the water, scuttle of gravel high on a seaside cliff. When, when, the, when the wind is fair, the sailors say the girls are pulling the curtains. They mean the girls at home who hold the rope that is by long tradition thought to be made fast to our bows. You who hold the linen cord that's fastened to my stern, do you remember all the patterns you unravel? The final poem, Wayfarer, as I said, is, is in the voice of the Penelope figure in the sequence. The more I worked on these poems, the more I began to think about you know, these two figures, Odysseus, the traveler, and Penelope, who stays at home. But also, Penelope is a maker, right? She's weaving and unweaving this tapestry as kind of a ruse to stave off the suitors, saying that she won't uh, choose between them or choose from amongst them until her tapestry is complete. So every night when no one's watching, she unravels what she's done, and the next day she weaves again. But the more I began to think about these two figures, the more I began to think about the ways that travel might be a kind of making or unmaking, um, and making be a kind of traveling. Uh, so this poem, um, Wayfarer, is in a sense about traveling, but it's in the voice of the maker, Penelope. At Ithaca, my waves begin, who juggle sand, who gather in the rack of land and cast it up upon the sea. This is no common tapestry. I weave them gold and green and gray to the horizon where they break. I ravel in the shuttle's wake, and each day's labor's lost, they say. They do not see how slowly the horizon line is worn away. Some even tide, the night will fail, it is but weft and day reveal my landfall as you know your sail. Thank you so much for reading those. Um, I was thinking this morning, looking over those poems, um, I was thinking about the poems, and I was thinking about uh, a question that you and I had sort of been asking 
just when we talked about this um, at first, which was, uh, you know, why is a, a 21st century playwright living in Toronto interested in uh, the gods? Yeah. Um, and what, how do the gods offer um, a way of expressing what feels urgent now? Um, and I think that in part the answer might be in what I've sort of clued into suddenly about these poems that you've just read, and particularly Wayfair does does a great job of, of hitting that home for me, which is I think in some sense these stories um, are a way, um, if I may say so, of, of, of you finding a way to express the love that you have in your life with John, actually. And... Um, I was trying to think of proof for this theory, and then I remembered the dedication to the book, which sort of says it all, if you don't mind. So, you, for John, you bolted the frame of my loom to your deck so that I can weave in all weathers and carved me a shuttle of olive wood. You warp the loom in rain, fine thread, and weave without unraveling the wine-dark tapestry through which we tack. And so... Um, it just seems to make sense to me. Um, and, and it makes me think of uh, something that another one of our playwrights in residence, um, Erin Shields, said in a conversation that she and Sean and I had recently, which was about um, the, the Greek gods uh, and their stories being like a river that you, you can dip your hand into and pull out um, something when you need it. And... Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a lovely analogy, and and I think, you know, we do tend to read the myths through the lens of where we are in life, and so it probably says something that you know, as I was reading Genesis for the first time, and I was not raised in any religious tradition, so the stories of Genesis were new to me in adulthood, and uh, I thought, well, of course it's a love story, and then I read the Odyssey, and I thought, well, of course it's a love story, you know, <laughs> so. Um, you know, now I'm reading the Metamorphoses, uh, which is a, a much more metamorphic kind of a text, as you might think. Um, but I'm trying really hard to see it as a love story. <laughs> so. Yeah, so I think returning to what you said earlier about the way that your two books have been sort of uh, on the surface interpreted as, um, you know, the, the personal and the, um, I can't remember what you said, but the... The mythopoetic, you know, The mythopoetic yeah. and, and the, the personal. I mean, it, it does seem to me that, that these two things are completely intertwined. Yeah. Um, and, and otherwise, like, why, why would one be so fascinated by that? And I, I know that, um, uh, you know, both Sean and Aaron, uh, Sean Dixon and Aaron Shields have said um, that... Like when they read these stories, they feel them now as relevant to their lives mm -hmm. in a way that shakes them, um, in a way that a lot of our contemporary stories might, might not at the core. So, yeah, I don't know if you feel that way. Yeah, well, I mean, this is going back to Northrop Frygen, who wrote so much about myth that it's difficult for me to talk about it without constantly going back to some of his writings. But he says that, um, you know, myth is not about what happened, but about the sort of thing that happens. Uh, it, and so, you know, a myth is a story that 
sort of proves itself perennially apt, which I'm sure is, is part of its abiding fascination. You know, mm -hmm. so in some sense, something gets to be a myth precisely because we find it perennially apt. You know, and you think about some of the stories in, um, in Shakespeare, for instance, or the story of Don Quixote, you know, these are stories that exist within uh, literary history, within history, you know, they're not prehistoric stories, but they have in some sense entered the realm of myth because we found them so perennially apt, you know, we continue to want to speak about ourselves in their terms. Mm -hmm. So how does that relate to, because you've, you've said to me before, um, or perhaps I read that you said um, that the mytho poet presides over the moment when myth dies. Right. So, so how how does that connect to the sort of perennial life? So, this uh, this quotation that Aaron read at the beginning of our talk, um, you know, the, this critic who referred to me as the last of the mytho poets. I thought a lot about this, you know, because on the one hand, I was sort of flattered, of course, you know, because it made me feel like a rarity. But at the same time, I didn't think he was right, actually. You know, I think the world is full of mythopoets who are alive and well and right here in this room. So, and in fact, um, Amanda's editing uh, um, with Evan Jones um, a collection of Canadian mythopoetry in the next few years. So, right. in fact, as a, with the, the man who called her the last of them, <laughs> She's now writing a uh, editing a collection of, yes. you know. I wanted to prove proof. just how wrong he was. <laughs> um, but, you know, it seemed to me like in a larger sense, there was a kind of a thing to what he said. You know, I think there's a way in which, you know, any mythopoet is going to feel like the last of the mythopoets because we all stand at the, at the end, or perhaps at sort of the verge of, of the tradition in which we're writing, you know, at the the moment in which uh, you are rewriting the story of Odysseus, you are the last mythopoet. You're the last one to have taken that on, um, you know, along with all the other people in the world who are currently writing the story of Odysseus. But but there is that sense that you're a sort of um, you're at the end of this huge, long tradition looking back at it. And it, I think it gives you the sense of this huge weight of responsibility, you know, in, in a certain way. Um, though, anyway, and then I got, I, I was sort of thinking about this further, this idea of being the last of the mythopoets. And I, I was reading um, a, this panel discussion that took place in the 70s amongst scholars and poets, but it, it included um, someone who I think is one of the greatest Canadian mythopoets, a woman named Jay McPherson, who lived and wrote in Toronto, and she died just last year, actually. Um, she taught at the University of Toronto, and a wonderful poet. So she was on this panel discussion along with various other people, including this professor of Celtic studies named David Green, who, who really said that, like, you know, myth is dead. <laughs> you know, we live in a post-myth uh, age. It, you know, it, in a world in which myth is alive, there's no separation between myth and poetry. They are one, you know, and he's sort of referring to the world of the, the Celtic bards who, um, who were, in a sense, seers and prophets, you know, because they, 
They had the craft of poetry. They had the ability to um, articulate the cosmos. You know, he, he saw their he saw these people as existing in what he calls a primary society in which myth, the sort of power stories of a culture and poetry have not yet diverged. Um, and so his idea is that the sort of poet who comes along and takes kind of a piece of myth and uses it for their own poetic ends is really existing in a, a world in which myth, in, in what he sees as the true sense, is sort of dead and gone. Um, you know, as, as, as soon as you kind of take the myth and recast it in a personal mode, as soon as you sort of see your own individual life in it, as opposed to sort of seeing, you know, the cosmos or the culture in it, uh, you've debased it in some way. That, that's his position. Um, and I don't think I agree with him, actually. You know, I, I tend to think that, um, that actually it's, it's sort of the reuse of myth for personal ends that keeps it alive. And that, you know, as much as we use myth, it uses us, you know, and, and that, that myth, as I said earlier, you know, um, keeps itself in business precisely by recruiting new uh, sort of um, poets who are going to see themselves in it or their lives in it and, and want to kind of um, turn it to their own personal ends. So, so you know, I don't, I don't think, I, I, don't, I don't really think that the poet presides over the moment when myth dies, but I, I can sort of see what he's saying in a way. You know, I do think that maybe the poet presides over a place of transition in which the mythological and the personal are kind of um, interacting. You know, in a, a place where the mythological is passing into the realm of the personal, and at the same time, perhaps the personal passing into the realm of the mythological. You know, if, if your story is good enough, it will pass into the realm of myth. I wonder if it's more not the moment that it dies, but the moment that there's the fear of death. You know, and, and I guess that makes me, what you were just saying makes me think of the question of um, how can art keep the gods alive or right. keep the yeah. story alive, which is, a, in, which is one question of the play that you'll see this afternoon. Um, and something else that, um, in terms of myth of poetry that um, you've talked about is when myth is like, myth is when, um, fully released from religion mm -hmm. to art. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, uh, you know, Amanda was saying, you were saying earlier that, um, that, you know, you read the stories of Genesis as an adult, so like you have access to them in a way that is about story. It's released from religion to a realm of art. Right. So in one sense, that's kind of the death of, of the religion or of the, right. of the God. But in another way, it's, it's permission to give it vitality and, and to, to keep it alive. And so I guess I, I kind of wonder, like, do the gods keep or lose their power by being released into art? Right. I, I guess it sort of depends on your perspective, because there's always been this, the complexity of that question, I think, is reflected in the fact that there's always been this very uneasy alliance between formal religion and organized religion and art, right? Because I think, um, you know, organized religion has always recognized that art has great power um, to, uh, to keep the god or the gods alive. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, 
um, organized religion has often uh, seen that art has great power to, to undercut um, the kinds of stories about the gods or the god that organized religion is trying to tell, you know. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, um, you know, you know I, think, I, think that the, I think that mythological art is sort of a sword that cuts both ways, you know. Um, but that um, traditionally, what art has threatened has been um, not so much the gods as the, the earthly power structures of organized religion. Um, though at the same time, art has often been recruited precisely in the cause of those power structures. So it's kind of, it's, it's an interesting kind of uh, historical thing. Well, you told me a, a story about uh, recently giving a reading at a Christian college. Yeah. Maybe you could tell, tell us a little bit about that. So in um, Hamilton, where I live, there's a wonderful uh, poetry series run by the Hamilton Poetry Center in collaboration with Redeemer College, which is a Christian college up on the mountain, as we like to call it in Hamilton, up on top of the escarpment. And um, any poet asked to read for the Hamilton Poetry Center also goes to read for Redeemer College. And I was a little bit nervous about this precisely because of the uh, content of the poems in the middle section of my book, Groundwork, which, as I said, you know, is set in a very unorthodox Garden of Eden. And, um, but I decided to read the poems anyway, you know, partly because I didn't want to self-censor and partly because I was sort of interested to see what would happen. But what I found was that uh, the students and the faculty members who were there were fascinated and like, they got all the jokes, you know, and they, they totally understood. They knew those stories better than I do, you know, because they, they were, uh, you know, had grown up on them. And, uh, you know, I did preface the reading by talking about my own, uh, you know, quite irreligious background. But I also talked about um, the ways in which I had reverence for those stories, you know, which I, I saw as being great and vital works of literature. And, and not only that, but, but, but stories that really helped me to understand certain things about my life, you know. So, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a, a paradox in my work that often my most um, irreverent poems are my most reverent poems. <laughs> um, but anyway, the reading at, the, at, at Redeemer actually went very well. They were fascinating. They really wanted to talk about the poems, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well, and, and this is like, uh, I mean, wh whether you, your beliefs and theirs aligned, your writing uh, was doing work to keep stories that were dear to these listeners alive. Yeah. I think. I think that's true. Um, this is maybe going back to what you were saying about, um, you know, the, if not the moment at which myth dies, the moment at which myth is threatened. But there's certainly a theory that exists, you know, um, of quite a widespread theory around modern poetics, you know, like um, the big modernist poets, Eliot and Yeats and Pound, who are very interested in myth, you know, and the idea that this kind of upsurgence in the use of myth in English language poetry had something to do with a kind of crisis of faith in the wake of, for instance, the First World War. You know, that, that, that story in itself it's, it has become a myth of, with great currency, you know, in, in literary criticism. Um, so the sense that we turn to myth precisely at these moments when our 
sense of the nature of reality is threatened, right? Well, you've um, talked about, I think, well, I don't know if you've said it in these terms, but I feel like there's a sense of um, the impulse coming from doubt. Right. You know, um, and, you know, grappling with your own doubt as an atheist, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, I think that, you know, precisely what I was saying about, you know, the, that your reverent poems being the reverent poems, yeah. you know, it kind of is about that same sort of a thing. But, um, you know, I, I, I do think that sometimes, you know, we look to the old stories to try to explain ourselves to ourselves at precisely those moments when the old stories seem to have lost their currency, you know. Um, but it's interesting, you know, I, that uh, Celtic scholar David Green, who was talking about this time, the sort of primary society, you know, before doubt existed, <laughs> before there was such a thing as mythopoetry, you know, I tend to think that's kind of a myth, like in the other sense, in the sense of being a bit of a falsehood. But maybe it's just the inveterate doubter in me. But I have a lot of trouble picturing a society in which doubt does not exist, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I tend to think that there have always been these, these you know, poets, these doubters who kind of exist around the fringes of, of religion, trying to kind of make sense of things well, in ways that are both reverent and irreverent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think there's a, a character in the play you'll see this afternoon that, that speaks to that a little bit um, because uh, one, one of the characters is sort of just a, a believer. You, you know, if you, he questions his, his faith, which is a faith that has been translated for him because uh, his faith is in Catholicism um, via Latin, a language he doesn't understand, um, and he believes what he's told and is faithful. Um, and then even he, who's, who's not the, the most intelligent of the characters in the play, um, finds these questions tugging at him. Um, and, and I think, I think that's, that's part, of the, part of his reason in the, in the piece, is to sort of address that maybe doubt, perhaps. Yeah. I thought uh, reading Sean's play, like how wonderful to be a playwright, you know, to be able to sort of inhabit all of these sensibilities simultaneously. I think it's really wonderful. I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about reciprocity and the idea of the stories using us and us using them. Um, so there's this um, wonderful and well-known aphorism um, of the pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus. Immortals are mortals, mortals immortals. They live one another's deaths and die one another's lives. So this sense that there's this kind of reciprocity between uh, the human and the divine, the mortal and the immortal. Each needs the other. There's a kind of like cosmic symbiosis right, in this uh, aphorism of Heraclitus. And this is reflected in the Christian story, you know, the sense that, um, you know, God, the immortal, becomes incarnate in this mortal form in Christ, right? Um, there's a book uh, by Jung, the psychologist, called um, Answer to Job, I think, where he sort of expounds his own really basically mythopoetic theory that, you know, just as, as um, 
humanity needs God in the Christian story. God in some way needs humanity. That, you know, the, in this confrontation between God and Job in the Old Testament, um, you know, God asks Job a whole series of, of questions that Job can't understand. But, but Jung's theory was that Job also posed questions that God couldn't understand and that God needed to become, needed to experience what it was to be human, to live a real, a real life and to die a real death in order to understand the suffering of Job. So, you know, I mean, this is a, a mythopoetic theory, a very uh, unorthodox theory. Um, but one that speaks to me, you know, for, for those reasons. And I think for me, you know, to kind of return to my own more sort of uh, atheistic or kind of um, pagan kind of context, you know, I guess I sort of think about this in terms of the reciprocity that exists between human beings and the world that we live in. You know, um, the gods, for me, can be metaphors with which we talk about these forces that are beyond our control, you know, the forces of the natural world, the forces of the social world or the human world that are bigger than us. Um, and yet, you know, we have this sense that, you know, they're not entirely separate from us. You know, we go into them and they come into us. Uh, so, you know, when I think about that reciprocity of the mortal and immortal, I, I think, you know, about the the ways in which each of our finite human lives is connected to the sort of suprahuman world, you know, that which goes beyond us, which pre-exists us or will continue after we are gone, you know, to what extent um, are we dependent on it? To what extent is it dependent on us? Because after all, we're part of it, you know? So, uh, you know, these are questions that are, I think as much ecological really as they are, uh, mythological, but myth can furnish us with really powerful metaphors with which to talk and think about those questions. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's so many things I want to ask you about, but then we'd be launching into a whole, you missed the play. We don't want this to happen. <laughs> no, so, I'm going to the play too, so. Yeah. Um, but I would like to ask you to read one more poem from your other book. Um, a poem called Holy. I won't even say why, because I think it will be evident. Holy. The words the weight of a stylus only, traveling the surface slip of clay, make slight impressions when you hear them first. Repeated, they cleave to the groove. This is the source of faith. The words ring true. When Hamlet walks on stage, act three, scene one, the audience inhales en masse and mouths to be or not to be. Thus, even unbelieving, I recite in earnest, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. Traveling home, we likewise cleave to roads we know and in our minds, the tracks are laid for these small houses letting go of smoke, these rivers clenched in ice, these pockmarked signs. And whether there's a child or not, the roads run thick with traffic, lines of people going to be counted. 
Um, if you'll indulge me, I, want, I would like to read one more thing. I was talking with Amanda about this. We'll end with a little story, a little anecdote. Um, uh, I found this beautiful swath of cloth that says at the, says at the front of it, Cold Linoleum, Three Sonnets by Amanda Hathaway Jernigan, 1999-2000. And this was a gift that Amanda gave me just after um, a production of Twelfth Night um, that we did together. Um, and recently Amanda was saying, isn't it a shame that we didn't all just, you know, when we were 18 or do a production of Twelfth Night so that later in life we could say, who did you play in Twelfth Night? Um, which I thought was kind of a wonderful thing. Anyway, I found this last week, so then, and I found it quite apt um, for actors about to go on for opening night of, of this play that you're about to see. So I read it to them, so I'll read it to you now. Um, I said to Amanda this morning, I hope you're not going to be mad at me. And she thought I'd post it on Facebook, so she was horrified because it's, you know, it's, it's an old poem. You know, it hasn't been, it hasn't been recently tested. And I said, no, I love it. But no, I just read it to the actors. And she said, well, that's all right. So, um, and it's, it's printed on a piece of cloth that was part of her costume, in fact. So anyway, Viola. We try on keening speeches, shy, these clothes too fine for voices, common speech makes slack. But as we thrill to them, we get the knack of feeling in this giddy foreign mode. This living language time has turned to code. We crack and mouth each line until it smacks of truth. And gypsy-like, the play unpacks its meaning. With each gesture, sense explodes. Disguise, thou art a wickedness wherein the pregnant enemy does much. Unknown to us, the solemn untapped springs within, that these words winkle down to and let flow. Backstage, the costumes lie, abandoned skins. For weeks, I'll try to shake her from my bones. Thank you. Thank you.